Today is July 7th, 2016, and episode 3 of the MechaCast. Today we'll be covering episodes 4 and 5 of Mobile Suit Gundam. If you have questions or comments, drop us a line at themechacast at gmail.com. Also, follow us on SoundCloud or Stitcher, and rate us on iTunes. I'm Donovan. This is Matt. And today, we've got a pretty jam-packed episode. A lot of stuff to cover, a lot of things to get through, so let's go ahead and move into our summaries. Episode 4, Escape from Luna 2. Our episode opens with the crew of the White Base making it to Luna 2, a Federation stronghold. Commandant Joaquin tells the crew that while he can arrange transport for the civilians, they cannot stay. Things become tense as he then proceeds to detain Captain Bright, Amro, Ryu, Hayato, Kai, and Sela. He tells them that they're to be court-martialed after being exposed to top-secret military technology. On the Moose side, Char plans a daring attack on the base that requires that he and his crew leave their Zakus behind and go out in normal spacesuits. We flip back to Bright, who, while detained, tries his best to warn others that an attack by Char is imminent. He is ignored. Suddenly, an explosion occurs and alarms are heard throughout the base. Joaquin orders that the base's warship be launched, and with the power gone, the White Base crew escapes from their cells. As the Magellan warship is leaving through the base's main hatch, Char detonates more charges, effectively blocking any means of escape. A standoff ensues between Joaquin and Bright as the latter attempts to escape using the White Base. Captain Paolo breaks off the standoff and appeals to Joaquin. He then gives the White Base consent to fend off Char's attack. The Federation forces are successful, but as the battle comes to a close, Captain Paolo succumbs to his injuries. The episode ends with a small service in honor of the captain. Episode 5, Reentry to Earth. On its approach to Earth, the White Base is accompanied by a Salamis. During the brief reprieve, Amro acquaints himself with two of the civilians on board, an old man and his grandson. Back on the Musai, Char concocts another daring plan of attack. He wants to assault the White Base upon reentry. The attack quickly commences and Amro is the only thing standing in the way of Char and his men. A shuttle that was leading the White Base to the correct point of reentry was damaged during the attack and is forced to dock inside the White Base. Meanwhile, Amro fights off Char and his men to the point of retreat, but realizes that he's unable to get back to the ship in time for re-entry. However, the Gundam proves resilient and links back up with the white base near the surface. Char is disappointed that the, at the attack's failure, but notes that he did succeed in pushing the white base into Xeon-occupied territory. He contacts Garmazabi, head of the Earth Occupation Forces, and fills him in. So, let's go and take a look at episode 4, The Escape from Luna 2. A lot of themes going on here, but I believe this is the first episode we really get to see any of the Federation forces beyond the characters we already know. Yeah, it's interesting to get to know more of the High Command from uh, the Federation as time goes on. Yeah, and we kind of see that Things aren't all roses and, you know, justice and the American way with the Federation forces here. There's a lot of strife and internal conflict. Yeah, and this is where we get more into the gray area that Gundam likes to explore, particularly in war and especially into the two sides. So, while I wouldn't say there's any military corruption here, there is a lot of bureaucratic and sort of 
technical things that get in the way of um, successful operation here, or things that there are things that could have been prevented had it not been for such a rigid and um, egotistical struggle that occurs between the commandant Joaquin and Bright. Mm-hmm. I agree. So our first interference—it's our first interference of. What are supposed to be their allies? They get to Luna 2, and it's a reprieve for them. They get a chance to finally be free of um, Char and his relentless pursuit of him. It's supposed to be sanctuary, but immediately getting there, they're detained. I'm not sure how we're supposed to feel here, but you definitely get the sense that it's supposed to endear us to the white base, I believe, and that like they're the only ones we can really trust here. Definitely, you just feel for the white base crew immediately because it's not like Commander Joaquin is sympathetic or like doesn't really ask any f- or questions. He just goes ahead and, and arrests all of them. Uh, it's kind of weird though because did somebody order was was he ordered to arrest them? Because I, I feel like he was at some chain of command. He was because he said you've you've leaked secrets to. Uh, two civilians was the main thing I believe they were charged with. You would think he would have been because I can't imagine he was filled in on what the gunman and white base no, were. being classified military information. But um, we don't get any direct reference to be him being ordered to detain them. All we really see is him taking the actions himself. Mm-hmm. And whether this is him acting of his own accord or following orders... He does so in a very forceful manner that they're not really given a chance to explain each other. And while I guess that could be argued that that's what a court martial's for, is to be a trial and to see what everyone knew, it doesn't seem the appropriate time for such. And, uh, well, to go off of sort of his suspicions, like, let's think of what the Federation High Command would have been experiencing. So they lose contact with this colony that has their super weapon on it. They know that it's been attacked by Xeon forces, and then and then the, the super battleship with the super weapon on it just happens to show up at Luna 2. So, there's a lot of questions I think they, they would be asking, and uh, and probably hostilities there, uh, an uneasiness of accepting the white base crew, but yeah, Commander Joaquin is just really forceful and sort of just not doesn't really go about it. I, and I think we can agree in, in the right way. Yeah, but I also, you have to understand it from his point of view. If he was commanded to do that, he's just following orders. Mm-hmm. And I think part of why he can be forgiven is, while for us, we know what kind of person Char is. We know that he's already in the works gaming. Mm-hmm. That and we get a, you know, we get a cut to Char and it's shown that he is scheming. <laughs> is but, in fact scheming. But that's not really a risk here. Luna 2 shown to be a pretty massive stronghold, so big that they had to fly around it last episode to actually get to the uh, point of safety. Mm. So they don't really foresee an attack from one lone ship affecting them all too much, but they know what kind of man Char is, and they have no doubts that he's planning something. Bright especially has uh, come to gain a healthy respect for Char and his plans. 
in the course of these two episodes, we'll see that Char will take any means to capture the Trojan horse. Mm -hmm. Another important thing about this episode is uh, loss and war. And while we've talked about this before, especially with Frabo's parents in episode one, it really comes to light here as our first actual character that we've been introduced to. Uh, Captain Paolo Cassius dies at the end of this episode. And... For a lot of the crew, it's it's the first time they've lost a comrade to the war. Before, they were just civilians, and there was mindless destruction going everywhere. But this man did his best to hold them together. While he had a broken body from his bed, he was trying to give commands out and still make sure everything goes as smoothly as possible. And he saves everyone's lives as best he can. And this shows a... A sort of shift in the plot because Captain Cassius or Paolo was their only connection to sort of Federation authority and we'll see throughout the rest of the series that Del Nato only have friction with Xeon forces but also Federation High Command as well and uh, Commander Joaquin is just sort of the first in a long line of that. And we see here what use having Paolo was is because while I can't say that he's actually uh, the Commandant's commanding officer. He is an older uh, Federation officer. and Respected. He's respected, definitely. He's definitely put his years in, and he's a name that's well-known. Mm-hmm. And I have to think that later on, he would have been invaluable in dealing with some of the Federation high command that we see going forward. Mm-hmm. At least more so than Bright would be as an ensign that's, you know had a battlefield sort of trial by fire promotion to captain of the white base. And I'm sure he becomes more respected going forward as the exploits of the white base become more known and he seemed to be extremely competent at his job. But right here, no one respects him. And we see that in the next episode. Everyone's always second guessing and questioning his decisions. And he goes on to prove them wrong time and time again. That's kind of, uh, it's interesting to think, would Joaquin have ever kind of submitted to Bright's demands if Captain Paolo wasn't there to be like, Yeah, that's oh, man. <laughs> the same thing I was thinking. It was, you know, if he wouldn't have been there, what would have happened? You think Luna 2 would have just been destroyed by Char? Or maybe not destroyed, but the fleet? Mm-hmm. And the white I, base could have been captured. I mean, hopefully you think Captain Joaquin would have, or Commandant Joaquin Give the man his due. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would have um, see, seen sense and done the right thing, but there's no guarantee. Yeah, but I think the white base and the gun have enough plot armor to uh, probably get there alive. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> no one, the specs of plot armor are incalculable. <laughs> yeah. So, just looking at Captain Paolo's death again, I think it was very uh, touching scene to see that they provide him a funeral by launching him out into space. Mm-hmm. In a lot of ways, it mirrors what we see today of naval officers, or at least um, I'm not sure how often this is still done, the burial at sea. It's very reflective of that. You see um, them launch him out there, and it's presumed that his body just floats on through space forever, just as the sea claims dead sailors. So... Now that we've kind of gone through our themes very loosely here, let's kind of look at the characters individually and see what's going on. Char, 
What are his goals here? Because there seems to be a secondary underlying motive, and I can't really tell what that is. It's definitely there. Mm-hmm. In, in what sense? I guess in the sense that there's got to be a reason he's on this so intensely. I mean, he's doing stuff he's never done. He's doing stuff that no one's ever done. And part of me wants to think, well, that's because he's just such a he's such a trooper. He's, you know, he's the great overachieving soldier. He's going to do whatever it takes to get his job done. Mm-hmm. Part of it almost seems personal. He's been thwarted by these people three times now, and he's just doing whatever it takes. Uh, But, you know, it seems more than that. It seems like he almost has something personal to him at stake in this. Uh, Char, I'd say, without trying... I was was trying to get where... where what you thought was the underlying thing, because I didn't want to spoil something later on just in talking about it. But, uh, yeah, Char is definitely a character that takes everything very, very uh, personally. It's not, you know, in The Godfather, it's, it's, it's not business for him. It's personal. So it's really pride-oriented? Yes, in a way. Char does have a lot of pride. But, again, like you said, he's, he's a very calculating man. He has... He definitely has a very strong secondary goal, which this will sort of capturing the white base and the Gundam will allow him to obtain. Uh, well, I'm curious to see what that is. Mm-hmm. So, other characters. Commandant Joaquin, we've kind of talked about already with his initial hostility. But he's sort of the star of this episode. The, the arc that happens throughout the course of the episode, the little isolated story we have, focuses on him and sort of his reactions to what's going on. He does have a nice little character arc in that episode, doesn't he? Yeah, he's goes from following orders, doing his, the best he can to sort of take control of this situation. Mm-hmm. And he does it pretty crudely. He's crass in the way he handles things, and he doesn't really give a lot of consideration to the crew and what they've been through or what they're going through. Mm-hmm. It's pretty by the book. His bedside manner as a uh, command or a commandant is lacking, I would say. Mm-hmm. He changes throughout the episode. As much as he comes at odds with Bright, he surely does not want to see all these men and all these uh, Federation resources under his control get destroyed or killed in this attack, and he's willing to make concessions of his own pride and of orders he's already made to see everyone make it out alive. So one example of this, I feel like, is that he listens to Captain Paolo. He hears him out, and he's willing to let the older man, the more experienced man, change his mind. Yeah, uh, I think definitely, too, it's a... Not only is it military high command, but it's politics versus practicality. I'd say, in a way, because I feel like uh, taking control of the white base and the and the Gundam was trying was more of it was kind of a politically motivated move to keep uh, the white base maybe out of and the Gundam out of Zeon eyes, I guess. So you less think publicized? He, you think he might have been looking for, um, I guess, um, consideration from his superiors. Yeah, he's looking more in the interests. I guess we already talked about, kind of said it, but he's looking out for Federation interests and not the interests of the crew 
and even Luna 2 staff. So it's the overarching goals, or his overarching yeah. goals that matter yeah. here, not necessarily the safety or feelings of the people underneath. Exactly, yeah. But this definitely changes, especially when he sees the pain that Paolo's in and he hears the man out. Yeah. He gives consent. I mean, and I feel like this culminates in the moment that he gives Wright um, permission to fire on his flagship, the Magellan that Char ends up trapping within the um, main hatch of Luna 2 basically blocks everything from coming in or out except smaller mobile suits. The battleships can't get out. They can't fend them off. They're stuck there. Mm -hmm. And while they're there, they're just sitting ducks for Char to come in and clean up things. Brilliant strategy, by the way. Mm -hmm. And you almost see that the fact that everyone becomes too reliant on mobile suits, I'm not sure if that's going to be a thing later, but he says, hell with the mobile suits. We'll go in and do this old school, setting the charges, getting past security. I mean, it was pretty smart the way he um, ended up setting everything up. Mm -hmm. But like I said, Commandant Joaquin's main turning point here is when he gives Bright permission to fire on his own ship and destroy it. I know that in a lot of books I've read, especially that are oriented on the sea and you have different naval officers uh, like Nieville, The ship is an important thing to a captain. It's almost like it's a part of them in some way, and to let it sink. I mean, you have the old motif, the captain will go down with the ship. Mm -hmm. So when you can definitely see it does something to give that order to say, yes, fire and destroy the Magellan. Mm -hmm. But right before he can give the order, he glances back at Paolo resting in his bed, and he sees... Uh, if I don't do this, things can end up a whole lot worse. Yeah, and I guess if the ship represents Joaquin, a part of Joaquin's self in a way, him destroying that is sort of, uh, I guess him moving forward in a way, but also the fact that his decisions led his ship or himself to sort of going down in a way. Like that, the ship blocking the entrance represents sort of uh, his capturing of the white base crew in the beginning and sort of his, his bad decisions basically that led to that. Wow, that's that's pretty insightful. So you're saying that the Magellan, his ship blocking them from getting out yeah, is, is basically Joaquin's orders or man, is manifested as Joaquin's, Joaquin's orders, orders. Yeah. blocking them from getting out and mounting Yeah, a, his sort of his um, his inability to lead with flexibility physically is blocks the white base from getting out. Huh. So you think, symbolically, him firing upon it, sort of getting rid of his pride? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and leading practically. Do what needs to be done. Yeah. So a couple of interesting about, uh, things about Joaquin is... He's got a number of appearances, just like several other characters and other works surrounded by the original series here. Mm-hmm. Like, you've got the uh, manga, was it Gundam Origin, I believe? Yeah, yeah. And you've got the anime, and you've got the book. And, and the movies. And the movies, yeah. you're right. And all of these, he's portrayed in a few different ways. Typically, he is seen as a more sympathetic Federation officer, and I believe we'll see him later, but one interesting fact is he's poetic. You're, he enjoys writing poetry mm-hmm. in his spare time, which I think gives an, uh, sort of a 
rich background to a character you wouldn't normally think of as being more developed than the episode we're looking at now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why it's, it's, I guess it's such, even though he's only there for an episode, it seems like such a well-done character arc. Yeah. It's, I wish kind of that sort of thing came to light is that he's very intellectual as a commander, mm-hmm. as a um, Federation officer. And the last character I kind of want to look at, well, there's two more, but one short, but Amro. He thinks of his father at the time of Paolo's death, and I wonder why that is. Well, Paolo was kind of a follow figure to the whole crew in a way. He represented an authority which they no longer have. In a way that Bright can't always keep up, as we saw in sort of his uh, his talk with Sailor at the beginning of episode two. Right. Bright has a really hard time keeping that air of command about mm-hmm. him. Definitely. Where Paolo... No one ever questions him. No. Not while he's here. Everyone follows orders and has a lot of respect for the man in a way that Amro's questioning Bright in the very first two episodes. Yeah. And it's going to be up to Bright to kind of fill into that role and grow up. Mm-hmm. You know, he's only 19, but... Jeez. <laughs> you forgetting that. But it is a... Um, I think you're right, though, that... In a way, Paolo's a father to them all, and Amro is once again being separated from that figure in his life. Mm-hmm. And now the Gundam must assume that role once more. <laughs> <laughs> we talk Gundam and Freud. We're yeah, doing it. Gundam and Freud. But <laughs> the other relationship uh, that Amro has that's explored further in this episode is the leading one throughout this series, I want to say, and that's between him and Char. I think especially the lines, um, Char, what kind of man are you, stick out in my mind, as Amro comes into conflict with him once more. And there's almost sort of a beautiful way that they interact, as most of their interactions come from the fight. They don't spend a whole lot of time talking with one another, but they're definitely gaining a sense of one another. There's mm-hmm. something there that's driving one another into each other, and they're, this rivalry is just, every time they come, uh, they meet, seems like there's more conflict involved. Yeah, and I think we'll talk about it in the next episode, but the next episode, I think, is when they sort of cement their, rob- their rivalry. It's kind of a culmination of everything that's led up to it. Mm -hmm. And we see them sort of lose control. But we'll get to that in the next episode. And lastly, Paolo. I think it's safe to say that he's sort of the exemplar Federation officer. He's what you want someone in his position to be. He's honorable. He's respectful. He's flexible. He does everything he can and hears everyone out. He doesn't judge, but he's also firm in his conviction. And to see him go, I feel like we really, everyone's trying to learn from him in this way. I Mm -hmm. think the best line in this episode actually comes from Joaquin as he laments over his death and he thinks about the war in general. He says the war is going to get much harder from here on out. And his exact quote is, one by one, we're losing people who have so much to teach us in reference to Paolo. And I think that's a great line as far as what war does. It doesn't just strip us of loved ones and family, but it's stripping experience. It's stripping away people who have a lot to offer still. Mm -hmm. And that's so much more than 
you know, just relation and being close to. But, I mean, in certain wars, you've had entire generations wiped out. I think about World War II and an entire generation of Russian men just gone. Mm-hmm. How might things be different if some of them were alive? Yeah. Just think, a few of them. I think that's a good sort of response, too, to some people say that how war is what stimulates society in a way. Kind of like after World War II, we had so much technology because we developed a, because of war and how war is some kind of good thing. But I think, I think that's a good rebuke to that, to that argument. How much more could we have done exactly, if yeah. those people hadn't died? Yeah. There could have been great minds, great leaders who were cut down as an 18-year-old mm-hmm. in battle. Yeah. In a battle that wasn't necessarily theirs. Exactly, yeah. All right. Well, one thing we can get to real quick is sort of the design here. We get another action sequence. It stands out in my mind is the episode where Amro dual wields beam sabers. <laughs> yeah. He's getting into two uh, two-handed lightsaber <laughs> battles before it was cool in Star yeah. Wars. Yeah. But there's definitely um, a change in this battle compared to the others is you see the emotions on their faces as Amro and Char engage, engage once more. What comes to mind is a close-up shot on Char's face, and he's smiling as he goes towards Amro in for the attack. He's looking forward to this at this point. Yeah, he, he definitely he, he likes battle. Uh, he's got a thrill for it. There's a thrill in it for him. And I think Amro is becoming the same way as he learns better and better. Mm-hmm. I think, as we'll see in the next episode, it's becoming, a reg- as it becomes a regular thing for him, it's become something he almost gets to the point of enjoying. Mm-hmm. But we'll see. Oh, another little note. You know, just the clamps that hold the ship in place as it fires. That's kind of interesting, the way that they're trying to com- or they're trying to explain away. Well, if the ship fired into while it was inside the spaceship, then it the would weightlessness fly. would fly it back. Make and it they fly got- back, yeah. It's, it's a nice touch. It's a nice touch. It, it shows they care. It shows they care, but they don't care enough to make those rules consistent. No, you're like there's there's gravity inside the ship somehow, and uh, again they can't. I don't expect them to do everything, and you have to at some point you got to think about entertainment value over, versus yeah over realism. Yeah. I mean, we're not reading some hardcore science fiction novel here, no, so yeah. I'm willing to make concessions, but. If you're going to do something like that, you can be a little more, I guess, picky about your role or afford to be a little more consistent in what your rules are. Yeah, I agree. All right. Well, we spent a lot of time on that episode. Let's move on to episode five, the reentry into Earth. This, for me, stands out as a cool episode just because of it's in one giant action scene from beginning yeah. to end. Yeah, pretty much. But just because it's action oriented doesn't mean there aren't themes at play here, Matt. Mm-hmm. There's a lot you can see in action movies or action sequences in television shows. I just need to convince my girlfriend of that. Well, which is what made uh, uh, Mad Max Fury Road such a great movie. Yeah. We're diehard. <laughs> a lot of themes in diehard, too. Yeah. But looking at that, this here, the main theme that comes to light for me is Char and Amro's rivalry. Like you said before, it's sort of cemented in this episode. And why that is, um, why do you think that is? That hmm. Because I guess so far it seems like Char is somehow not taking it easy, 
but his he hasn't really been going after Amuro. But you can see whenever they're sort when he and his men are fighting Amro in the atmosphere, and he gets in that ship, and he's like, he's dead. There's no way that pilot is surviving, and he survives. That's just such a a big loss to him. And yeah, it really comes through when he's talking. He can't believe that. Yeah, first of all, you know he's let them not get away so many times, but there's so many times when he's let them get the better of him when he's known they were incompetent. Especially during the, um, during episode two, was it? When they were trying to restock. Yeah. And, you know, the white base just comes up and, you know, kills, kills a lot of men, destroys a few of their supplies, and then reveals sort of their... Ignorance. Yeah, by, by retreating early. He's like, why are they, why are they doing that? It's a horrible decision. He knows they're, they're inexperienced, and yet he's still sort of bested by them. And I think another thing is it's starting to become intolerable for him letting the Gundam go in his mind. Like, okay, this suit has now killed almost a dozen of my men, it seems like. I mean, Amro's kill count is starting to get up there. Yeah. Also, he he kind of has to let go of the Gundam because they're they're now in, in Garma's territory, as you see at sort of the end of the episode. And as... As you can tell from his discussion with Dozel earlier in a few episodes, he doesn't like... He's like the cop who doesn't like to give up jurisdiction. Oh, no. He's, uh, <laughs> I want you off this case. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like that. Almost makes me wonder if he's going to go rogue. <laughs> go after the Gundam himself. But we'll definitely see it coming up as we're introduced to a new antagonist. Mm-hmm. So... One thing about this, uh, as it's highlighted, is Amro is completely focused on Char during the battle. Yeah, and Char tries to use that to his advantage, because I... Correct me if I'm wrong, but he kind of leads Amro away, and then he tells his men to go after the white base, correct? Yeah. But Amro is increasingly showing he's getting better at this every time he does it, in the way that he kills several of the Zaku's anyways. Mm-hmm. Despite Char trying to distract him, and I gotta think, Char in his mind, every time he lets this guy get away, it's gonna be harder the next time to come mm-hmm. up against him. Yeah, wait, because the because the Gundam learns, right? Yeah, <laughs> we didn't talk about that, but yes, the Gundam's Learn- learning. Gundam, Gundam's learning. For that is an excuse that Amro tells uh, the rest of the crew the reason he's so good at piloting is because the Gundam learns. I feel like that didn't need to be said. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> I almost feel like that you could have just said Amro have Amro saying, you know, it was it was difficult at first and this and the suit specs are making up for my inexperience, but I'm getting more comfortable at this. I mean, the suit learning, Amro's learning here. And it seems a little bit of a just not a cop out cuz cuz you have to I feel like it's worked into it. But I didn't think they needed a cop No, they, they didn't need it. There wasn't... There, but I don't know. Maybe there were several, you know, 10-year-olds at the time going, I don't believe this. It's, yeah, I mean, they could have just something simpler. They could have just said, like, well, it's a combination of luck and the suit specs. They didn't have to say it, it learned from its battles. Yeah. Because I think they, they pretty much dropped that at the... No, they don't. I think they, they explored it a little bit more later. But we'll, we'll, we'll come to it. We'll come to it. Okay. Um, one interesting thing about this is... It's the first episode where we get uh, a writer returning. His name's Hiroyuki Hoshiyama, and he direct 
not directed, but he did write the script for the first episode. And I think there's some parallels between that one and this one with how the civilians are affected by this war and the battles that go on. And our example of this is the old man and uh, his grandson that Amro ends up interacting with at the beginning of the episode. Mm-hmm. The old man is originally from the Earth, and he came to space, I guess, to either be with his parents or his grandson, and things didn't work out. He's clearly been affected, as he mentions, that his uh, son, or his daughter, whichever, they were both... um, they were both killed in the one-week battle. He references, which I don't know anything about, but I'm assuming it's something that took place early on during the war. Yeah, I think it was the first week of the war. Uh, and it was, I think that's when they, they were using all the, I have to look it up again, but that's when they were using all the nuclear weapons. So, like, I think it was, like, half the population of the world died or something like that. It was, or half the human population. It was, you know, it, it was... was Staggering losses. Yeah, we'll have to look that up for next time, I think. It's, it's, it's very important for the lore. But Interesting. But there's an increasing bitterness here it's, that I feel like... Um, well, the old man, in my mind, reflects the comments by Hayato in episode one. Hayato is frustrated with uh, the Federation coming in and interfering with their everyday life. It's the same with the old man. Neither of them like the fact that, you know, Xeon forces are attacking them, but neither of them also like the fact that the Federation is pushing them around and interfering with their lives so much. He makes a pretty damning statement, you know, that he's tired of it, and then once he gets to Earth, he is staying there, Mm -hmm. and he's not going to let anyone move him. And I think the implication's clear that if they do, it'll be over his dead body. Yeah, and this show's kind of set, even in this world where humans have sort of, I put in air quotes, conquered space, uh, there's still this huge tie to the Earth. And that'll be explored more in other Gundam series, but in especially in Zeta Gundam and then in Char's counterattack, Char likes to use the phrase, humans on Earth are souls weighed down by gravity. So it's like, it's like, are humans have this identity that's tied to the earth or is it, is it this sort of earth as a home base? Is that holding us back from reaching our, our greatest potential and and conquering the stars? Well, this old man's definitely invested. Yeah. I think you can draw from him is how humanity is the humanity's identity is intertwined with earth's. That's where their roots are. Yeah, exactly, yeah. He was a farmer in South America. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he even has old beans from uh, back from when he was a farmer. Mm-hmm. I guess he plans to replant those and go on living his farmer ways with his grandson. But whatever the case may be, he's going back. And mm-hmm. I guess it almost feels to him that it was mistake ever leaving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Things just got more complicated after that. Mm-hmm. Amro sort of sympathizes with these people when the old man sees that he's not that much older than his grandson. And, well, he is, the, you know, Amro's a teenager, his grandson's a kid, but the idea is Amro's just a kid himself. Yeah. And he asked him, well, where are your parents? The first time Amro really mentions, well, I got separated from my dad on side seven. My mom's still on the earth. And I didn't realize he had a mother. 
Yeah, no, we will see her in very soon, actually, in one of my favorite Gundam episodes, so stay tuned for that. Okay, interesting. I thought it was just Kana's father, and we were going to go from there, but... Yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, not a uh, surprisingly not an orphan or not dead mother. That's kind of weird for anime protagonist. Right. <laughs> so Frabo, um, she's still around, doing her best for the morale of the civilians and the crew here. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting that I find that I thought she was part of the crew. She's not actually part of the crew. She just counts as a civilian. Yeah, because in the last episode, she wasn't arrested. Right. Mirai... <laughs> She continues to show that she is a brilliant pilot, despite mm. her commercial roots. Yeah, and, um, very level-headed, like Sayla. Say, yeah, both of them extremely professional in their jobs mm-hmm. and displaying amazing competence for being civilians. Just, I'm not sure time-wise, but it seems like a week ago, mm-hmm. and in the midst of a battle, taking this battleship into Earth's atmosphere. And re-entering effectively. Mm-hmm. We come to our last character, and he's sort of introduced here. I'm not sure how much mileage we'll get out of him, but it's another Federation officer. And this one, again, comes into conflict with Bright. His name's Lieutenant Reed, and he's dictating orders. He's calling Bright kid. Mm-hmm. Sort of disrespectful for a man who's running a battleship right now. And who's rescued by Bright. Yeah, he's rescued by Bright. And, this and he, and he tells him he's gonna be, you're going to be court-martialed. Right? Court-martialed for incompetence in the field after he saves everyone's lives. Yeah. It's just ridiculous. But it's the things they have to deal with. I mm-hmm. wonder if, uh, had Paolo been here, had would he have been able to convince Reed that he was being an ass? Yeah. Uh, we can't. Poor Paolo. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. Rip in peace, Paolo. So, you and I kind of disagree with the some of the design aspects here, but let's go ahead and say it. The atmospheric battle that takes place in the atmosphere. Yeah. No, it, I want to say, okay, so what I was talking about before is the sort of the first half of the episode, or the first two-thirds of the episode, where really are, are before they come up to the atmosphere. The battle in the atmosphere I love. It's one of my favorite Gundam moments, I would say. But uh, before that, when they're just all around the white base, it's kind of hard to get a sense of where everyone is in relation to the white base. I thought uh, more Zakus are fighting the white base, and it turns out they're just over in the distance. I couldn't really tell where Char was and Amro were fighting in relation to the white base at points. But uh, it... In, in that kind of, and I don't think he was bad, but just in comparison to the fight in the third episode, wherever they uh, took him by surprise while he was restocking, you could really get a sense of where everyone was in relation to everyone else. And I think it made for a more tactical bat, or seemingly tactical battle, whereas this case, it just, it seemed like more people were kind of just everywhere in shooting. And I think that sort of, we made some comments back on that episode, episode three, I want to say. And the reason they used Luna 2, we thought that was a great design choice because we said, well, you could just have people shooting at each other in space. Yeah. And now I kind of get a sense of why they had that there because it sort of grounds where, yeah. where all the action's taking place. Yeah. Here, our only reference point is the omnipresent Earth Yeah. in the background, which... 
for my money, it, it looks pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. The fact that that one thing can change everything. Yeah. That and, image. And like I say, when we get close to the Earth, that's when the battle gets good. Whenever we have... Uh, we can we have a, a distance because Amro's getting they're all getting closer to the Earth yeah. into the atmosphere. So you kind of have uh, like Luna too. You have this base of reference, so you can kind of get a, a, a spatial awareness of where everything is, and also the amount of danger they're in. So definitely, I think it's better. Makes it better. But the conflict between Amro and Char is well done, I want to say. Yeah. When you see them up close fighting to one another, it gets brutal. Oh, yeah. And we definitely see that with the melee weapons being used here. As far as, uh, what, what's, the, uh, what's the little tomahawk? I, I love like the heat hawk. The yeah, heat hawk. The heat hawk. It's pretty cool. He shreds Amro's shield, shield. in yeah. half. Mm-hmm. And he's, like, angry as hell when he mm-hmm. does it. He's, you know, like, I'm not playing around with you anymore. We're about to end this. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to go in for the killing blow, and Amro evades him mm-hmm. once again. They, It's really tense. You get the sense that time is running out as both ships start to descend. Yeah. And it's well done. Oh, yeah, In definitely. terms of the tension at play here. Mm-hmm. Amro, you know... We clearly see that his impulsiveness that we saw in the first episode comes into play once more. Yeah. As it almost gets him killed. Because he's only, he's, he's only going after Char. And that's why he stays out. He's like, no, I have to go after Char. I have to... And Char's not even that... Invested. Uh, invested in Amro. He, he tries to... He knows, actually, that, that Amro's going to come after him. And he leads him away. That's how, I guess, that red suit kind of works to his advantage. Because while he sort of is like this decoy who leads everybody away. You get your other guys to come in and uh, attack the white base. Right, and it's a brilliant stroke by Shar because Amro, I don't know what's going on here, but he gets fixated on the battle, whereas Char, you know, as much as he's invested in downing Amro, once that four minutes is up that they apparently have, he's like, Damn it, I'm out. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to sit here and die for this. Oh, no. Yeah. I've got other things I want to accomplish. Yeah, which is, uh, again, a good indicator of his secondary goals that you were talking about. Oh, as much as this is important as him, it's more important to live fighting another day. Yeah, he's, he's a much more intelligent pilot than he is a prideful one. And some other things. We see anger here, and I'm losing men. And as much as I want to say that that angers due to, you know, him being a good commander and feeling for the loss of his comrades, to me, it's almost more of a case of he's pissed that his resources are going out the window. I think it's a little bit of both. Uh, you get kind of a, if you're familiar with Gundam Wang, it betrays vibe from him there. I think at some point he does he does care about his men. Uh, he's not a total asshole, and... But yeah, at the same time, he's a, he's a little bit more more angry that he he's thrown all these men and people at the white base in the Gundam, and he hasn't been able to do a thing. Yeah, and he's shown to be far more competent than these people. Like Char's daring plans are becoming a running theme here, as he's doing stuff no one's ever done. Like he literally yeah. says, oh, "We've got about twenty minutes till all of us start descending in the atmosphere." I don't think anyone's ever tried to launch an attack in that space of time. Oh, yeah, and even Bright says, I don't think Char will even try to attack us right now. It'd be Everyone foolish. says that, yeah. yeah. 
I think they start to learn. Do not doubt Char. If you think yeah. he won't, he, he will. will. The same thing with Luna, too. Oh, this is a Federation stronghold. We've got more men, more manpower. He'd be foolish to attack us with one Musai. Yeah. He did it. Yeah, he did and it. And he almost got away with it, too, if it yeah. weren't for the meddling Gundam. <laughs> so, a lot of great camera shots in this battle. Just for my mind, um, I can think of is when Amro's staring down his gun sights, and he sees the Zaku's panning away from him in the distance, and he sort of zooms in on Char there. Mm-hmm. He's fixated on him almost at this point. And um, descending into the atmosphere as you see the friction burning all around them. Yeah, and also it's a great setup because you have Amra right next to the, the Zaku pilot <laughs> and he just disintegrates, <laughs> burns alive. And then it just it just elevates that scene so much. And then I was like, oh my God. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> You know he's going to get out of it. You don't know yeah. how, but it's like tense as hell. It's but everyone yeah. the white base is like, Amro's still out there? Yeah. What's going to happen? You know, like the Federation people must be thinking, damn, we're about to lose the Gundam. You know, they're all thinking, wow, Amro's about to just die. Mm, yeah. And, and Char's counting on it. He's like, okay, that solves one problem. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting to me here that their primary goal is the white base. And that's a more valuable mm-hmm. target and goal than the Gundam itself. Yeah. But everyone's disappointed or elated to see when the dust clears and they all descend down to Earth. There's Amro. Yeah. Still alive. Mm-hmm. Waving. Mm-hmm. The Gundam. The Gundam waving. The Gundam waving. Is <laughs> probably the best shot of the episode. <laughs> Some good quality there. Mm-hmm. He's got to be really sweaty, though, in that thing. You think? You yeah. think he got hot in the, that suit? A little bit. It probably doesn't have that good air conditioning or ventilation. No. <laughs> Needs to hydrate once he gets out, I'm assuming. Yeah, really. And another great shot is when the civilians, the white base's heat shields open up and they see the earth below them. Mm-hmm. And you get a sense of this world is that there are people who have never seen the earth who've never seen the ocean. Mm-hmm. And the closest thing you can get to that here is maybe someone who lives deep in the interior of land and, you know, like someone who lives in Kansas. They've never taken a trip yeah. to, like, the coast and seen the ocean before. Yeah. How amazing that must be. How mm-hmm. amazing would it be to see, you know, a place that is so much bigger than anything you've ever seen descend yeah. upon it and there's land and water as far as the eye can see. And in the colony, all you can see are these, you know, you can see the expanse of it. It is kind of interesting, though, that in the science fiction show, the the most uh, sort of... Uh, astounding. The most astounding view is not that of the big space colony, is not that of the battleship, is not that of the 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 Federation base was that of the the natural world what we consider the opposite of science fiction. It's almost, I guess you said it before that there's a theme of humanity has its roots on the earth and mm-hmm. it's clearly seen in the awe these people have of it. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I think it's well it's well intentioned in that regard as. When you think of the Earth in comparison to what else we know as planets, I mean, it's just this jewel of life 
and so many things about it. It's the birthplace of humanity that how could you not be in awe of it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. For a lot of these people, that's where their ancestors came from. Maybe not their parents, but their grandparents and mm -hmm. their great-grandparents. That's where it all started. Mm -hmm. To think there are people who never set foot on it before. Yeah, yeah that's, that might actually be a future that uh, we'll have to think about, you know. It's interesting that, that for Brian, this is sort of a homecoming. Mm -hmm. He mentioned this is my first time in space. and yeah. You clearly see a division in people here. There are people who've never been on the earth. And as much as space has become a lifestyle for this culture, there are people who've never been in space. Mm -hmm. So I think this is going to come to light in further episodes. Well, are there any closing comments you had about these two episodes we just watched? No, I'm ready for, uh, for them to fight Garma and uh, for their long, slow trek across the globe. Well... Again, I'm Donovan. This is Matt. And thank you for listening. If you want to drop us a line, remember, at themechacast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on SoundCloud or Stitcher. And the best way to get us out there and to make sure that we're seen is to rate us on iTunes. It really does help as far as making you visible. So that's the best way to do it. Give us a review. Thank you.